0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Oh, where are we? Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I've titled this message, The Dawn of a New and Better Covenant. New being new and better being better. We find them both in Scripture, especially Hebrews. Uh, clarifies how this is a better covenant than the old covenant. Sometimes we think of new, well, it's a new model, a lot of the same, but just an updated version. No. No, what we have is a far superior covenant covenant. Uh, than the Old Covenant. That Old Covenant, if you recall, uh, it it was the one that was ratified on Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. Uh, It was a collection of blessings that God promised to a specific group of people, that is, Israel, uh, contingent, of course, on their obedience to covenant ordinances, those rules that were in the covenant, uh, Please don't understand or don't misunderstand, excuse me, salvation was never obtained in the Old Covenant, or during the Old Covenant, through the keeping of those ordinances. Salvation has always been a free gift of God uh, through faith. Um, but the pledged blessings, those promised blessings of the Old Covenant, uh, in order to inherit those, those were contingent upon obedience. The blessing was contingent upon obedience. So scripture says, if you obey all that I have commanded you, if you obey my, my ordinances and what Moses has spoken to you, then you will remain in the promised land. You will uh, receive blessing. You will, you will uh, experience and enjoy peace on every side and I will be your God and you will be my people. If you don't, the land is going to vomit you out. You're going to be carried off into uh, captivity, uh, which, of course, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah both were. Thinking about this, our our own experience in, in the sinful flesh, battling against the flesh, what we strive against day by day, we would probably have to admit that this old covenant the old covenant that Israel had, trying to maintain perfect obedience to the old covenant, that would have been challenging. That would have been difficult, especially while dwelling in a sinful body. Uh, that That is going to be really, really tough. Add to that that, especially that during the old covenant, which was a promise that God made to a nation of people. Actually, the progeny of Abraham, the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, a whole nation of people, add to this that they remained predominantly unregenerate. There was only a remnant that believed through pretty much every era of time with Israel. Uh, They were predominantly unregenerate. They consisted of millions and millions of reprobate sinners... Needing to obey God's law in order to experience the blessing of the old covenant folks that that was challenging, impossible, really. Let's just think about it. Um, God sent Jeremiah, whom we read earlier, to prophesy to Israel. He came at a time when the land was just about to... Vomit them out due to disobedience. So when Jeremiah prophesied there would someday come a new covenant, that comes as a welcomed revelation, folks. In fact, Daniel, Daniel also prophesied, he actually prophesied while they were in captivity over there in Babylon. Uh, He came just after Jeremiah, and uh, he invoked Jeremiah's name and God's promise of a new covenant when pleading to the Lord uh, in prayer. Pleading to God in prayer is seen in Daniel chapter 9, a very familiar chapter. And in response to Daniel's impassioned prayer, his fervent prayer, God dispatched an angel named Gabriel to supply Daniel with with a sort of timeline to Israel's restoration. Everybody remember what those are? That's the 70 weeks, right? Uh, There was a timeline given by Gabriel. uh, Also, Gabriel predicted the crucifixion of a Messiah. He promised that, that God would bring an end to sin. He would make atonement for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. How would he do that? Well, we're told that the Messiah would be cut off. That is, that he would be crucified. And uh, that would bring to an end or to a conclusion all of the temple sacrifices, which, by the way, remain uh, prohibited to this day. To this day, Israel is not able to practice. the the ordinances of the covenant because there's a big gold dome sitting on top of the Temple Mount, right? There's there's no way they can sacrifice and and obey the covenant of God as it stands presently. Um, The reason I invoke these ancient prophets, Jeremiah and Daniel, uh, is for us to recognize as I read our passage... Luke chapter 22, uh, as I read this, Israel had been waiting for this new covenant. They had been waiting for these promises for a long time. A really long time. Um, Jesus here today in our passage, he hands it off. He hands off the new covenant to a small band of ragtag disciples from Galilee, now referred to as apostles, And it's imperative for us to recognize as we page forward beyond the Gospels and enter into the book of Acts that the day of Pentecost, as we read this, the day of Pentecost was approaching. The promise of the Holy Spirit would soon come, just as recorded in Luke, Volume 2. That is the Acts of the Apostles. So these are the guys... That are going to get the promise today. Let's read beginning in Luke chapter 22, verse 14. It says, When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until all is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine at, on the table, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed! And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Well, in verse 14. Folks, we see the understatement of the ages. The understatement of the ages when the hour had come. You know, the hour here isn't referring to a specific time of day, five thirty five or or such. Um, it refers to a historic event, a, a historic era that had finally dawned. Did Luke's reference to hour uh, mean that it is now sunset? Yes. Uh, Did it signify the hour uh, in which Passover began? Yes. Uh, Did this even turn into an hour of betrayal? It did. But far more significant than all of these is that the hour had finally come for the dawn of that new covenant. That new and better covenant. And, And it comes... Just as Jesus and his disciples commemorate how the angel of death, he is referred to as a destroyer in the Old Testament, uh, how the angel of death back in Egypt had passed over the people of Israel because their homes had been marked with the shed blood of an innocent lamb. Moses told Israel in Exodus 12 verse 23, the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and smite you. Amen. Amen. So, any sense? Any sense? Uh, Israel had to be covered. By the blood of the lamb in order for death, the destroyer to pass them by. And Passover was, was a celebration to Israel to help them recognize the purpose of the Messiah when Jesus would act ultimately come. You could see an image of the future lamb and those lambs, a reflection uh, that they were of Christ. Um, there had to be death. There had to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And, and friends, this is, this is the final Passover. This is, this is the last one, uh, which our passage says Jesus earnestly desired. He earnestly desired to eat with his disciples. You know, Jesus' uh, words in your Bible uh, might be translated with desire I have desired. That's a more literal rendering. With desire I have desired. And and Jesus' choice of words here suggests that that he is very eager. He's very passionately desired uh, to celebrate this Passover with them. Think about that for a minute. Why is he so anxious or eager to celebrate this Passover with his disciples before he suffers? Well, it appears Jesus is eager to bless his friends, to bless them with all the benefits that God had promised would be realized through this new covenant. You know, Jesus is, is very eager here to put all of those spiritual lessons that Israel had learned through the, through the sacrifices and, and, and through the festivals and through the feasts that they celebrated, even Passover. Jesus was anxious to to put all of this behind him, be behind them, so that the substance of Christ, the substance of Christ in His gospel, could now shine across the whole earth. This promise was going out to everyone. Um, the The law, the the ordinances in the law, were only shadows. You know, they're kind of reflections, glimmers of what would be realized in the substance or the reality experienced in Christ Jesus. Um, previously, uh, due to that old covenant that God had made with Israel, to which they heartily agreed, by the way, they agreed to obey uh, those ordinance and decrees in the law, were, they were held against Israel. Kind of like an obligatory debt. They, they had to observe them in order to get the blessing. They had to keep them. As such, the law, the Mosaic law, according to Colossians 2.14, it was a certificate of debt that was hostile to us. Hostile to us, uh, which Jesus wanted to cancel out. He wanted to take it away and nail it to the cross. That's what Jesus wanted to do for his Friends, all of those ordinances, all of those obligations found in the Old Covenant, uh, the sinless Christ kept them perfectly. He obeyed perfectly and he nailed that invoice to the cross stamped paid in full. Paid in full. Um, After keeping all of those commands, all of those ordinances, Colossians 2.15 states, Jesus at the cross (laughs) he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, and now, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to ordinances, all right, food, drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, all of those ordinances in the law. Folks, this is why Christians, Christians never become Mosaic law keepers. That is not what Christians Become we, we we don't keep the Jewish Passover anymore. It's not for us. There is no Jerusalem temple any longer. There are no lambs left to be sacrificed, not a single one. Um, this becomes another reason we've referred to this scene as the Last Supper, by the way. It's the last one. Um, and John uh, just as John the Baptist declared when he saw Jesus approaching, behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the last one getting sacrificed on a cross for for these disciples. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Same day, sunset has come. It is Passover. But this is the last lamb to be sacrificed. Uh, Passover, through all of those generations, only only served as a a shadow, a foreshadow to the sinless offering of Christ, And this is why Jesus transforms the Passover meal. He transforms it uh, into an altogether new meal, which we know of as the Lord's Supper. It looks back. It looks back in remembrance uh, at His atoning death. In verse 16, For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus had taken a cup, when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So their sharing of a cup, notice the indefinite article there, it was a cup, that marks the end of Passover. That's the end of it. Not only was this the last Passover to be commemorated, Jesus also said that this would be His last. His last until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. There's much speculation about what Jesus means by this statement. Some think that He implies that an actual Passover Seder meal will in some ceremonial fashion in the future be reinstated in the future kingdom of God, is, is like a memorial of some kind. I remain unconvinced of that position. I, I don't see... I, I First, I don't know where we would find additional support for that in Scripture, uh, additional evidence, and, and I'm not personally fond of the suggestion that Jesus will turn His substance on the cross back into a shadow again. You follow me? Um, I believe a future Passover would... Only diminish and detract from the one-time sacrifice of the cross. I I may be wrong, there are people that disagree with me on that. But I do know Jesus' words. And and he says it in this way in, in Mark chapter 14, verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's going to drink it new. I take the view his statement instead assures that, that Jesus pledges to wait to celebrate any other feast until his beloved bride, the church, is fully ready. At that point, we are all going to sit down together when everybody is finally there when, and when Christ has consummated his kingdom. We're going to sit down and we're going to hear that announcement. Blessed are they who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's going to be a good day. Uh, and that is what Jesus is waiting for. During the meantime, he declares to us as his, as his followers, go out into the highways, go into the byways, the, look along the hedges, uh, compel people to come in. Compel them to come in so that my house may be filled in anticipa- anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what I think Jesus implies when he says, I will neither again eat nor drink until all is fulfilled in the kingdom. He is patiently waiting for his bride, his beloved bride, uh, to arrive and be ready before he ever again breaks out the fine crystal. You know what I mean? He's waiting for everyone to come in. And we're going to celebrate that day together. Um, in verse 17, that first cup, he had described as a cup, Uh, He gives that for His disciples, and and I don't believe it adds any significance to Holy Communion. Uh, There were traditionally always four cups served during the Jewish Passover. There were four cups during that dinner. Uh, This was just simply one of those earlier cups. You follow me? It was a cup. The cup that is significant to us as Christians, we see it in verse 20, is the cup. The cup. Uh, the definite article there. The cup that comes after the meal. So the Lord's Supper is not introduced until verse 19, only after Jesus had eaten the Passover with his disciples. So, Jesus had already... The, the Passover meal was a long, drawn-out meal and a celebration with, 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 uh, which took quite some time. So Jesus had already spent considerable time on this evening with his disciples before he instituted the Lord's Supper. You follow me? The precise chronology of this evening, it is tough to pin down. It is really hard to pin down, exceedingly difficult. Remember, as I told you uh, just a couple weeks ago, discerning a strict chronology, it's not really crucial to the gospel genre. That That style of writing that describes uh, the life of Christ, not crucial and, and if you if you attempt to try to harmonize all four gospels with timing of everything you 're just going to grow frustrated because that 's not what the gospel writers are trying to communicate. It was a strict chronological timeline uh, it uh, It does however appear in this evening that the disciples dispute that it about who is the greatest? It occurs after. It seems to occur after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, after that first communion. Then that seems to be followed by Jesus' display of humility in washing their feet. You see that in John chapter thirteen, and we're gonna, that's our message next Sunday: "As greater is he who serves." So he then, after they start arguing about who's the greatest, then then he. Uh, bows down and washes their feet. And and then that is followed by Christ's high priestly prayer calling for unity in John chapter 17. I'll be honest, I I grow weary trying to pin this down with precision this evening of exactly which, uh, which happened first. One of the biggest controversies, however, one that people struggle with, is, is that we can't honestly be certain exactly when Judas is dismissed by Jesus. That bothers some folks. I, I know there are uh, some who are, you know, the the old stalwart, the, the King James only, fundamentalist, you know, we are right, Baptist, closed communion purists. You know, it's only us who insist that Judas had to have been dismissed before the Lord's Supper. Had to have been. Uh, they're convinced Jesus would never allow uh, an unbeliever or a betrayer of any kind to take part in the Lord's Supper. Folks, I, I imagine over the last 20 centuries, there were plenty of frauds. Plenty of betrayers who had partaken, uh, partaken in communion both here and in every other church around the world. Um, I don't lay awake at night worrying about that. About whose heart is regenerated and whose isn't, uh, people are going to have to police their own hearts. Most of the theological resources, not all, but most of the theological resources, probably your study Bible agrees, um, most of them conclude that uh, Judas is still present in verse 19. Uh, Luke seems to portray him as there. Seems to portray him as there. In verse 21, if Judas is present during the Lord's Supper and thus partakes of this bread and also of the cup and then afterward goes out to betray Jesus, boy, it makes his betrayal all the more egregious that he sat there as Jesus inaugurated this new covenant. Let's look at it. The dawn of the new and better covenant in verse 19, it says, And when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Then, of course, the Apostle Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that Jesus says again on this occasion, do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me, right? We say that every time we do the Lord's Supper. So this meal, which inaugurates that long-anticipated new covenant, is clearly established as a memorial, all right? It's a memorial, Is the Lord's Supper sacred? Yes, it is sacred. It is set apart. Is it holy? It is. But does partaking of communion itself convey grace? Is communion a conduit? A conduit of forgiveness? No, no. Is is the ritual... Of eating bread and drinking of the cup. Is it efficacious for the forgiveness of sins? Do, do people get their sins forgiven when they do the Lord's Supper? No. No. Absolutely not. Folks, uh, I grew up uh, in, a, in a, a section of Lutheranism that taught that. Uh, it is also a monumental error of the Catholic Church. Not trying to be rude. It is just truthful. It is a monumental error. Mass or the Holy Eucharist is deemed by them propitiatory. Meaning that your sins are forgiven through taking it. Uh, The act of participation dispenses grace and forgiveness every single time a person partakes. That is an egregious error. That's a bad one. It's as bad as the doctrine of purgatory. You know, which declares that you pay at least a part of your own sins in a fiery purification uh, and torment. Devout Roman Catholics, and I'm not saying this is every person who attends a Catholic church, but devout Roman Catholics, if they understand their own church's doctrine, uh, they do not believe Christ paid our sin debt on the cross. They don't believe through faith, he paid our entire sin debt. Uh, Jesus, in that system, only made uh, the potential of forgiveness possible. It's potentially possible, according to Catholics. And you work out your salvation through the maintaining of the seven sacraments. That's how you get forgiveness of sins. They start with baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist. Confession, or they call it penance. Anointing of the sick. Marriage, if you get married, that helps. Boy, that's tough. And then the holy ordinances, or ordination, holy orders, where you can become a nun, or you can become a priest, or a deacon. Many of you, I know, grew up as Catholics and are very familiar with these. In reflection, in reflection upon those ordinances demanded by the Old Covenant, what have Catholics actually done with sacraments? They have actually reconstituted their own set of ordinances that they must do. They, they, they've made their own set of ordinances and mistakenly view forgiveness as contingent upon obedience to their sacraments, folks. That is not characteristic of a new and better covenant. That is not at all. Um, how do they defend their their position uh, that forgiveness is somehow through the consumption of the Eucharist? That's why some people go every single morning of the week. Morning Mass. Um, They point to a couple different verses. One of them is Matthew 26 verse 27. As Matthew records uh, this evening. Where while Jesus gave the cup, he said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness Of sins. So do they have a point? Well, we have to discern, is it the cup of wine, or is it Jesus' blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins? I think it's pretty easy to discern it isn't both. It isn't both. So pick one. Which one do you want? Is it the cup of wine, or is it His blood poured out on the cross? Well, Ephesians, if you need help with the decision, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 says, In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 7. In Him, meaning in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Colossians 1 verse 20. Jesus has reconciled all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Romans 3 verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yet we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiatory sacrifice, a satisfying sacrifice in His blood. How? Through faith. Through faith. Salvation is a gift by grace through faith. So, with the dawn of this, this new covenant... We are forgiven our sins by trusting that God's wrath against sin was satisfied as propitiatory uh, through the pouring out, First 1 Peter 1.19, of precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. We, we are not, folks, we are not forgiven our sins by, by the pouring out of a cheap glass of Mogan David. Seriously. It's the blood of Christ. Hebrews 8, verse 6, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Hebrews 13, verse 20 says, it is the blood of the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant. So we can be very confident we are not to be anticipating another covenant. This is the eternal covenant that we possess. Uh, This memorial meal is established so that we can repeatedly reflect back to the sacrifice uh, that was paid through the blood of the eternal covenant. Christ said what on the cross? It is finished. It is finished. Hebrews 10 verse 12 says of Christ, "...He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a a footstool for His feet." For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. It's a one-time sacrifice. One time. Folks, this, this scene, it marks the, the dawn of a new covenant, satisfying that promise that was given through Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again. Each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. The recipients of this, of this new covenant, God says, they will all know me, How's that different? Well, unlike the recipients under the Old Covenant, you know, they were a physical lineage, a physical offspring of Abraham. Uh, a remnant of Israel by faith did know the Lord. There was a remnant of believing Israel, but the vast majority of Israel under the Old Covenant, they remained unregenerate. Throughout the history of Israel, most of them did not believe. Um, so, uh, it, it was not, it is not going to be this way under the new covenant. God says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new covenant that God makes will be with an entirely redeemed people, in contrast to Israel. Uh, every single new covenant recipient will be spiritually regenerated. It's not going to be like the old days. Um, that's God's promise. And when we compare that old covenant with all of its binding ordinances, which became a heavy yoke to to just a predominantly unbelieving nation, this new covenant will be without ordinances and made with a believing people. Those who believe. Boy, folks, this is this. It's a dawn of a new and better covenant. Far better. Far surpasses anything that was promised to Israel. And this is the reason Jesus was so eager to share this blessing with his people. With his people. Very eager. Tragically, just very quickly before we go, there was still one sitting at the table. There was one sitting at the table who did not want it. Didn't want it. As we saw two Sundays ago, with Judas, what did he want? He wanted the world, right? He wanted the world. And he took that deal that Satan offered. The one that Jesus refused. Uh, The devil took Jesus on a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these things I will give to you. If you fall down and worship me, and Jesus says, "No, no, ain't happening. But Judas said yes. Judas said yes, and when he saw an opportunity to increase his, his worldly portfolio, he just increase it by, ah, 30 pieces of silver. Let me just get a little more of this world. He, he didn't even blink. He's like,, yeah, I'll take that. Good trade. Good trade. Uh, He was probably saying to himself as Jesus passed the bread and the cup of the new covenant. uh, he, He was probably saying to himself as that went around the table, you know, boy, I hope this service is over pretty quickly. This is kind of wearing me out. I got business I need to take care of outside. He said, Man, I can't wait till this is done. Whoa, think about that. What will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul when uh when it is said that jesus or when Jesus said that you know it, it potentially be possible to amass the whole world, he didn't actually say you could gain the whole world by forsaking him. he didn't actually say that. That's the lie of the devil that you can have it all and you can have it now. Uh, in your lifelong pursuits, you might only gather together a tiny fraction of the world, maybe, maybe a few acres. Huh? Get me a little bit. I'm going to get me some of this world. But even if you could, after 70, 80, 90 years of hard work and energy and sweat, even if you could amass enough wealth to buy the whole world, which will never happen, but even if you could, would it be worth it? No way. No deal. No deal. Um, Here's the rub. Here's the rub. Most people, like Judas, will gladly sell out Jesus for a whole lot less. Gladly betray Him. Gladly betray Him. And that's why verse 21, it begins with what is referred to as a a logical, contrastive conjunction. A a logical, contrastive conjunction. conjunction. That means it is logically connected to, but serves as a direct contrast to the proposition that Jesus had just offered. The proposition He just gave. Uh, Verse 19 begins with the word, but... And folks, this may be the biggest bud in the Bible. It might. I'm telling you, look at where we are. We are at the Lord's Supper. And right here, Jesus has just announced to the entire table that that redemption through that long-awaited new covenant as promised through Jeremiah and then affirmed through Daniel, that day has dawned. It's right before your eyes. This is the hour. And this is the biggest news to ever hit humanity. Much less Israel. And it's offered to everyone here sitting at the table. Okay? Verse 21, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. As I I look at this, I'm now persuaded that Judas actually was still present when Jesus ratifies the offer. Um, It's because of this but. It is. Here, Scripture offers a sobering and a direct contrast between those who accept Jesus Christ as the Passover Lamb who will be marked by His blood through faith on that day the destroyer comes and He's coming versus those who thumb their noses at the offer. In Mark 14, verse 18, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me, one who is eating with Me, They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good if that man had not ever been born. Judas was sitting at the table with Christ and the disciples during the most significant event in all of human history, the Last Supper. He was in the front row watching the dawn of a new and better covenant. And he missed it. Don't let that be you.